You're listening to the winning literary show, Off the Shelf Books Talk Radio, live with host Denise Turney, author of the books Long Walk Up, Portia, Love Pour Over Me, Spiral, Love Has Many Faces, and Rosetta's Great Hope. Turn up your dial and get ready for a blast of feature author interviews, 411 on book festivals, writing conferences, and so much more. Ready? Let's go. Stay away from those people who try to disparage your ambitions. Small minds will always do that, but great minds will give you a feeling that you can become great, too. And that quote is from Mark Twain, and I want to say welcome, welcome, welcome to Off the Shelf Books. To our loyal listeners, I always like to take the time to thank our loyal listeners for tuning in. And if it's your first time, I want to welcome you, and you are absolutely listening to the winning book podcast, Off the Shelf. It's June the 10th. Oh, my goodness, we are coming into the middle of the year. It just goes so fast. You gotta gotta go after what you want. You gotta go after it now. Because it it just passes so fast. Before we introduce you to today's guest, and we have a wonderful guest on deck for you and I'm I'm just excited to see and hear what she shares with us this morning. But before I introduce her to her, I want to ask you, have you ever thought about as we tra- you travel through the world, the ups, the downs, that maybe, and you've heard people say about the ego, is this your real self having these experiences, our real true self? I'm told never, it's never harmed, and we always feel like we're almost under attack all the time here. What What part of us or what is really, really here? And I encourage you, I wrote a book called Heal Gorgeous, Wisdom Within You Knows the Way. There's something in us, a true self. And it's time we tapped into it and remember what we truly are again, because that's what that's what the, the just the peace, the joy, that is always there. So I encourage you to get a copy. It's a very poetic writings. You can read the book in less than two hours, or take your time reading it and just absorb what's shared. Again, it's heal gorgeous, wisdom within you knows the way. It's in ebook, paperback, and hardback. I encourage you to bless yourself with a copy today. Drum roll, drum roll, drum roll, and now let us go and meet our very special off-the-shelf guest. This morning's guest is Anne DeMock. I hope I'm saying her name right. Anne is the author of the books Against the Grain and Humble Pie. Very interesting title. Makes you wonder, what is that book about? She also writes essays, short stories, songs, and plays, and she has two degrees, and she has had her She's had her work appear in in, in anthologies. Hers is a long history, also working to support and grow nonprofit organizations. She considers writing to be one of her biggest adventures. I like how she calls it an adventure. You can check Anne DeMock out online. It's it's spelled, well, you wouldn't know how to the sound, AnneDeMock.com, and I'm going to spell it. A-N-N-E, put an E on the end of her name, A-N-N-E-D-I-M-O-C-K.com, A-N-N-E-D-I-M-O-C-K.com. You're going to love her website, so I encourage you to get over to her website. I enjoy my visit over there. Some authors, their websites are just so, just really engaging. Again, that's andemock.com, A-N-N-E-D-I-M-O-C-K.com. I encourage you to visit her now. Going to bring her on live. Welcome to Off the Shelf, Anne. Hello, Denise. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Thank happy you. to have you. Last weekend you were busy. You were out and about. You had an event. I hope it went fabulously for you. It was a great event. It was great, and it was really very it was very important to me to be asked to participate in because it relates to my recent book, Against the Grain. It's, uh, the event was um, an African-American history of uh, the town that I grew up in. So, and oh, okay. that had a lot of bearing on the book. So it was, it was, I thank you for rescheduling me. It was really important that I be there last week, and it all went wonderful. 
Awesome, awesome. So to kick off the the, the show, I, I ask every guest who comes on about the same three to four questions so our listeners yeah. can get a little backstory on the guest before I go in. So to, to start this, this show, Ann, can you tell us where you grew up and what life was like for you growing up? Yep, I grew up in a suburb in New Jersey, a suburb of New York City. It was about 25 miles away. And um, I grew up in a middle-class family in a predominantly middle-class town. It was um, a very Catholic town. We had a lot of Italians and Irish, and I was part of that community. So I grew up in the Catholic church and went to Catholic schools until I went to the, the public high school. And okay. um, I, I had, I mean, I had, a, I had a good upbringing there. I, I you know, not a, not everything's perfect ever, of course, um, but it was a good community to grow up in. Most people have fond memories of it, and I do, I too have fond memories. But I also had a lot of questions, and that's was the basis for my book. Now, when you were a kid, what did you dream yeah. of being when you grew up? What did you want to be when you grew up? You know, I didn't have a good idea back then because there were, you know, actually there were a lot of people who wanted me to become a nun. <laughs> oh, there, there was some pressure. There was some pressure because it was uh, uh, kind of typical back in that day and time uh, among Irish families uh, of Irish heritage that you gave a son to the priesthood or a daughter to the sisterhood. So that was always on the table, but I never went that direction. And in time, I went exactly the opposite way. But in terms of what I liked and saw for myself, I remember as a kid that I saw a bigger world that I wanted to be part of. I liked my geography classes. I liked reading the National Geographic. I liked looking at the Encyclopedia Britannica and looking at Egyptian hieroglyphics and thinking about different languages. So that wasn't like, I mean, I didn't set out to become an adventurer, but I think, you know, I eventually did become an adventurer, and I think that was the roots of it. As I, through school, through the media that came into our house, I saw a bigger world, and I wanted to be part of it. Okay. Now, who or what inspired you to pursue writing? Where did where did your love for books birth from? Well, I think going to the, the public library, of course. And Dr. Seuss books were my absolute favorites as a kid. But I also read all those Bobsy Twins and Nancy Drew mystery books, too. And um, so I think just being exposed, um, you know, by my parents to uh, the books around me and, and by school. Um, I didn't really get the idea to become a writer until much later in life. But um, I certainly grew up enjoying reading, enjoying books. Now, you moved from New Jersey, where you said you lived near New York City, to the Midwest. What compelled you to enter social work? You really focused a lot on helping others and empowering other people. What drew you to that line of work? Well, I went to college and majored in anthropology. And, um, you know, a light bulb just went off in my head. It was more as like an explosion. I just became so excited. Uh, And this sort of brought together all my love of adventure and foreign lands and foreign languages. And I ended up majoring in anthropology, but also a Latin American studies minor. And, um, you know, through this, you could could see the, um, uh, not only the great histories of, peoples all around the world, but you could also see the contemporary problems in uh, developing countries compared to what I grew up in. So I ended up um, not really, I mean, I I worked in anthropology for a while, mostly as an archaeologist, um, but, you know, the pressure of the world's problems just became too great, and I gravitated towards work in nonprofit organizations. 
And that started in my 20s. And um, that, I mean, I, I have only worked in the nonprofit sector. I never had a a private sector job except for my uh, high school after school job. Um, Interesting. So, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you and so that what you were just drawn to it, and some people do. Yeah. They only do work in a nonprofit field. They enjoy. It's very important to them to do work that helps other people. They they really need to feel that this is really going to benefit and empower somebody else. That's so rewarding yeah. to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it certainly was. It certainly so, was. I started out actually in uh, working in teenage pregnancy prevention programs. And I was a health educator. Uh, but at some point, somebody asked me, hey, would you help us write this grant application? And I didn't say no. And that's what started me on the path of fundraising, is after I did that one, they asked me to do it again and again and again. And before I knew it, I was a professional fundraiser for nonprofits. So most of my career was really not so much in the programmatic services, but uh, being an administrator and a fundraiser that helped organize all the money that was going to um, support the work of the programmatic people. Mm. So along the way, I've worked for wonderful organizations and worked with great, talented people. Uh, I can tell you still, you can hear it in your voice. It's, it, that <laughs> you, you, it was something that you, you appreciate. Now, 40 years in the nonprofit world, yeah. I just have to say yeah. thank you for your work and, and for caring and putting that care into action. What Were there experiences, before we start talking about your books, are there experiences or real-life stories you you had during those 40 years that stick with you to this very day, if you could share one or two of those those experiences? yeah. I think I'll focus on my two favorite jobs. One was working for a large hospital in St. Paul, Minnesota. It was it was had originally been the county hospital, but then became a nonprofit one. And I worked there as their head of fundraising for about five years. And you really see the world come through your door at a uh, at a major county hospital. And what I also saw were some extraordinarily dedicated people, Um, not just doctors, but nurses, occupational therapists, the janitorial staff. There were wonderful people who worked very hard to help people who were in terrible circumstances often um, because of, you know, accident or illness or uh, aggression. And they also had a wonderful program um, on cross-cultural health care because St. Paul, Minnesota became a city of a lot of immigration. And um, we had, oh gosh, there were well over 20 languages being spoken in the, in the school system of the area. Um, so there was quite an influx of um, new Americans, refugees and immigrants, and um I worked with a lot of people to help make that transition easier for people. So that was a really good experience. And then the other one was I went to Hawaii to work um, a little later in life. Yeah, I went to the island of Kauai, and I worked for Habitat for Humanity, helping to, you know, raise the money to build affordable housing. And I learned so much about what life was like on one of the outer Hawaiian islands and um, the different waves of immigration that brought so many different people to the islands and the struggles they had, um, you know, facing down tourism every day of their lives for their livelihood and then trying to be able to, you know, make a home and raise a family on their own island. So that was another job that was very important to me. The work went well. I had a great boss, and the people were terrific. And, of course, the scenery was beautiful. Oh, yes. I was stationed in, in Oahu, on Oahu, and I went to Maui when I was in the Navy. And you, oh, it's just, when I got off the plane, I said, oh, this is what grass is supposed to look like. <laughs> it was. I mean, the green was green, green, green. The plants 
it was just different. I, I mean, everything was greener. The colors were more vibrant. Yeah. It was just very different than in the mainland. Um, yeah. So at 35 years old, you, you were, as a kid, you're reading Nancy Drew and these other books that you loved and going to the library. At 35, <laughs> it seems like you heard this call to start writing. Did, yeah. you, dive head, did you dive headlong into writing? If not, some people say yeah. they it took them years to actually get started. But what was yeah. that process like for you? Yeah, well, gosh, it's a funny story, too. And and I have a blog post about it on my website if you want to read the whole thing. But I, I had a little voice in my head, and I listened to it. And I remember doing a lot of soul searching at the time. And then I decided, okay, I'm gonna, I was between jobs at that moment. And I said, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to start writing right now. And the very next day, I found out I was pregnant. And wow. so, you know, this is one of these things like, boy, you know, God's having the last laugh on me right now. You know, I think I'm going one way, and all of a sudden, I'm going another. So um, that's that's how it began for me. Is It literally was, I made a commitment to writing on one day, and the next day, I found out I was going to be a mother. And it was kind of unexpected um, because I'd had years of infertility, but there it happened. And uh, I had a wonderful daughter, still have her. She's, she's a great kid. Yeah, we're very close. But, um, you know, her growing up in the world is also a parallel path to my writing. Interesting. Yes, yes, yes. Um, now, I love your bio and, again, your website, and I want to give our listeners your URL again. It's andemock, A-N-N-E-D-I-M-O-C-K.com. Again, that's A-N-N-E-D-I-M-O-C-K.com. I just love your, your bio at your website, and your writing is very conversational at your w- website. And so just to, to go in to start talking about you said you at 35, the call to be a writer, and then you also find out you're pregnant. So, but out of this comes, well, this is your latest book. If you could just uh, introduce off-the-shelf listeners to your book, mm-hmm. Against the Grain. Sure. Okay, Against the Grain. Well, this is a, a passion project from my heart because uh, this is a story about the town that I grew up in and about some of the problems this town had in the early 60s. Uh, In my head, I was writing this book probably, you know, for almost 40 years. Um, But I did not really get started on it in earnest until the pandemic. I had started it several times before, but never, you know, other projects took precedence. But when the pandemic came, I said, okay, this is the time to complete this book. And so I did. And the book is about um, a young girl in high school who's black, and um, she and her family are members um, of the Catholic Church. Um, through her mother, um, Catholicism tends to be matrilineal, and her mother had been raised Catholic, and so all the kids were going to be raised Catholic. But this kind of isolated them. In a town already where there were not a lot of black families, um, all the others were in the Baptist church or the Bethlehem church. And um, so this family was kind of on its own, and the kids went to Catholic school for a long time. But then this young girl, Fleur, she goes to high school, the public school, and along comes her junior year, and they can't find a typing class for her. So they give her work release, which is you get out of school early to go to an after-school job. And this was very common at the time. It was part of what schools did back then, tracking. When I explain this to young people now, they're, they're horrified. They said, that was legal? Yes, it was, I'm afraid. You know, people were often put into these slots based on race and income. And if you were a poorer person in our town, you got slotted into the business class. And that's not like airline business class. (laughs) This meant um, your education was not taken quite as seriously and you were not prepared for college. So that's what happened to this young girl in my book, 
is she's automatically slotted into business track and she gets an after-school job. But it turns out the after-school job is at a very nice jewelry store on the main street of the town. This is in 1962. She becomes the first black person in her town to have a forward-facing job in their town. And this disturbs some people and uh, confuses many people. And so that sort of begins the story. And it takes place over two years. And uh, the actress, this young girl, taking a, a nice job downtown where black people hadn't up to then been seen, plays itself out into a larger drama of desegregation. And along the way, there are um, many references to other uh, civil rights events going on in the country. Um, and indeed, later on in the book, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. comes to visit the local college, and he gives one of his speeches called The American Dream. And uh, this young girl is, is inspired by it, and um, she goes on to become a little involved with the local um, college campus trying to um, help plan demonstrations in their town to point out racism and discrimination. Well, she's just a high school kid. Nobody takes her seriously. So eventually, on her own, without anybody knowing, she undertakes her own um, protest. Um, at the time, um, there were protests in barber shops through, throughout some areas of New Jersey. These are recorded facts, and case law was um, built around this. Well, this young girl decides to try to integrate a um, small family-owned beauty salon. And what happens to her and her family after that is both inspiring and tragic. Um, so that's the essence of the book. I, I hope some of your readers will be intrigued and will want to read it and find out what happens to Fleur during this journey. It takes place during the years 1962 to 64. Yeah, and I call it historical. Yeah, go, no, ahead. go ahead. No, 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 you go ahead. I was going to say, I call this historical fiction. Um, and it, it is. It's fiction. I have fictionalized every person in this book. It's not based on me or anybody in my family or people I knew. I made them all up. Um, and it focuses on six different people, and the story unfolds through their viewpoints of what happened and what this meant to themselves and to their town. Now, can you describe Jamestown, New Jersey, uh, in this time sure. period, 62? What was this town like? Is it small? Yeah. Is it tiny? Is it? It's small. And there's a train track that runs through that, that takes people to New York City. So it's a bedroom community. Um, there, it is predominantly Irish Catholic and Italian Catholic. About mm, maybe nine percent, eight nine percent of the people are African American. Um, not very many Hispanic people there at that time. Um, the Catholic Church is very prominent. But there's also, you know, other churches too. But the Catholic Church is sort of the main event in town. Um, the town originally was one of these Gilded Age communities for the very wealthy families of New York City. And, you know, there were some big estates developed there. And in time, um, those were abandoned and donated to become university campuses. So there was a liberal arts college there in this town, and that became the liberal arts college that you see in my book, too. It, it had its influence in the town. Um, so I'd say it, it's, it was sort of a sleepy community, very uh, green, lots of trees. Um, you know, it's, it, it was a nice place to grow up. Okay. Um, yeah. Now, introduce us to some of the books 
main characters? What are they like, and and what drives some of these main characters? Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, there's six, and I'll tell you about the first two right here. Fleur Williams, she's 16 years old when the, the novel starts, and there's her father, Russell Williams. Uh, she's got a mother and a brother and a sister, too, but I've only focused on her and her dad for the purposes of the book. And uh, Russell had this dream. All, he was raised in Newark, and he had this dream all along of, living in a suburb and having a garden. He wanted to grow his own corn. And so through a lot of, you know, searching and sacrifice and the acrimony of his family, he eventually moved his family from Newark to this town, Jamestown. He got a job in the sanitation department of the city, and he had job security and relatively good benefits, although as we'll see in the book, Um, being on the sanitation crew was not the most lucrative employment, and often they were treated badly. Um, Now his daughter is the oldest child, and she starts out as someone who doesn't know herself very well, and she grows into a person who knows herself and what she wants very well. And um, in part, this is because of the after-school job she got. She got this job in a lovely jewelry store. It was a small family-owned business. And while they were kind of surprised at first to have a black woman working for them, they all adjusted pretty well. Um, There were some questions at first about whether she was just going to be a cleaning lady in the store or whether she was going to have a fully-fledged-out role. And the former would have been more typical at the time. Uh, But the family that owned the store treated her and their other employees well. And she was given a lot of different responsibilities. And she grew and grew through those responsibilities and came to really uh, regard this as a formative experience in her life. And along the way, she saw how she had been discriminated against in her education. Um, She did not get the classes that she would need to go on to college. She was put on that business track. So she doesn't see a vision for herself to go anywhere else until here's the next person in the story to come about. This is the wife of the college president in town. Her name is is, uh, Helen Ransom. And she takes an interest in Fleur. And Helen Ransom is kind of a busybody. Um, Her children are grown up, leaving the nest, and she needs something else to do. And in her sort of fuss budget way and ways that really are not appropriate, she inserts herself into Fleur's life. And it has some positive aspects, but it also um, angers her family a little bit because they see Helen Ransom as this clueless do-gooder who's coming in and um, trying to uh, assume a role in their family that's not appropriate. Um, she's well-meaning, but, but kind of clueless, as upper-class white women were at the time. So there's some friction set up there between Helen Ransom and Fleur's father. Well, some of the other people is um, um, uh, Mrs. Tanzer, who is one of the owners of the store. She's a German immigrant. She and her husband wrote, uh, run the store, and she, uh, more than anybody else, tells Fleur to plot her own life, to not get swayed by business track or by Mrs. Ransom meddling in her life, but to really follow her own curiosities. And then two other people are in the book. One is Mario Spacetto, an Italian barber, who's very much part of this town and community. He's like the third generation running his barber shop, but it's his shop that's first targeted for a protest when the college sends an African-American student into his shop to be served 
and he is repelled by Mario Spasado. And then the last person in the book is Father Halligan, who is the pastor of the Catholic Church and who runs a lot of things behind the scenes. What he wants more than anything else is to not let anything uh, disrupt the quiet, peaceful way of life in Madison. But of course, this is the early 1960s, and things are happening everywhere, and things do get disrupted in this town. So there you go. There are the six people. Oh my God! What a good, a good um, mix of characters. When you start talking about the father and his motive, when you listen to everybody's motive, motive, and how you can see how their motives can clash in the story or their personalities and. And then the whole nation's undergoing change, and this town's trying to avoid it, but there's no way it can. It makes it makes it for a very interesting story. Now, you said this: the book uh, "Against the Grain" is not based on real life experiences. It's not based on you or anybody you know. That shared. Where did you get the idea for the story? Um, well. Maybe I exaggerated by saying it wasn't based on anything in my life, because it is. But what I was trying to convey was that the people are fictionalized. This is not a veiled version. That's that's what I was trying to say. So I'm sorry if I let it go. But I worked in a jewelry store in my um, uh, time in high school. So I know what that life was like. I know what the work was involved. And um, the uh, the college did exert uh, quite an influence in the town and tried to um, um, promote more desegregation in the community. So they they really did bring in Reverend Martin Luther King for a visit, and they really did um, plan the barbershop protests, which went all the way to the Supreme Court in the state of New Jersey as an act of desegregation. So real things like this happened in the town I grew up in. And my impetus for writing the book is that nobody talked about this. Um, there really was a day in my childhood, I think maybe I was in fifth grade or something, I was a kid, I didn't know very much. And um, I was in school, and the principal got on the got on the intercom and said, "Nobody is allowed to go downtown after school today." End of story. Mm. This was this was like the word of God coming down. So nobody went downtown. And I asked about what's going on, and nobody would talk to me about it. Well, it turns out it was that barbershop protest. And uh, the television cameras were there. The police were there. Nothing happened. It was nonviolent. But I had to read about this in the New York Times later on to know what this was. And then as I grew older, you know, I had all these questions. Like I saw kids that I knew getting out of school early so they could go work for one of the local, one of the big insurance companies down the road. And at first I thought, Paul, that's great. You know, they don't have to stay and take English and chemistry. Well, you know, they didn't get to go to college either. They weren't prepared. They never saw it as part of their lives. And meanwhile, I I had friends who were known screw-ups, and they they were going away to fancy schools. So all of this and the role of the church and, you know, these in your teenage years, you begin to see these things. You begin to develop a sense of what's fair and what's not. So these were always things that bothered me, and ultimately I brought it all together in this book. And I see this book as a way to explore the local drama that can occur based on small events of history. And that's how I like to describe it, is that small acts of history are really very powerful dramas of a community and its people and its time and place. Now, what have readers been saying about Against the Grain? Well, um, people who've read it really like it. And It sounds like a I, fabulous I, story. It, it, and yeah, I love I, the way you describe it. 
and the characters. I just love listening to you talk about Against the Grain. Well, I have I have great affection for all these people, all of whom think they are doing the right thing. Some of them are not, of course, but they all have some sympathetic aspects to them. Um, so the people who, who actually read the book like it, and they say things like, I didn't know this went on, uh, or I grew up in a similar community, and these sorts of things did happen. So I'm, I'm really very pleased by the reader reaction. But I, I have to say that there are some people who've decided they're not going to read the book. And it's because I'm a white writer. And uh, um, so there's, um, I really don't have a good gauge of how many people um, uh, feel this way. But I know as, as I wrote the book and was seeking, you know, input and people's reactions, I did get some pushback. And I, I wrote a blog post that's on my website about this. And I think, you know, anyone who's interested, that's, that's a good way to sort of dig into my, well, why did I think I could do this? And uh, the, the short story is, is that I, I really examined my own conscience and I sought quite a wide variety of opinions from um, writers of color and editors and readers of color about whether I should or should not do this. So I leave it to all of you to sort of look at that blog post maybe and think, you know, did did I do a good job examining my conscience enough? But I, I, I do know that there, even in my own community where I live now, there are some people who decided they weren't going to pick this book for their book club because I was a, a white person and I should not be telling the story of a black person. So yeah, I mean, I, I think that's wrong, but it's, but you know, I, it's not, it's not something that I want to linger on as an argument. Um, in my blog post, I wrote about instead of saying, "Well, I have the right to do this," I wrote about what I saw as my responsibilities to do this well, and I think mm-hmm. that is a better discussion. And this is why I'm I'm so glad to be on your show, Denise, because this gives me um, an opportunity to to talk about these things. Um, You know, we live in a time of great racial tension. And, um, you know, this book can be a catalyst for, I think, some very good discussions. You know, here I have an event in the past witnessed by six different characters who all have their very distinct points of view, all of whom think they're doing the right thing, and some of them aren't. So I think it is a good way to explore the events of our past and the events of our present, too, around Mm -hmm. racial inequality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for me as a... Yeah, as a writer, uh, I I always come at it from like the human, and and, and you mm-hmm. get input. You have you you have to. I mean, when I wrote my book, first novel, Portia, although I had had a breast cancer scare, I'd never had, I never had a breast removed, and I had a lady, a woman, people who had gone through it, uh, tell me one woman. She said, "You're really not stressing the absolute horror." that a woman feels to know she's going to have a breast removed. And so I I'm, I was I had to talk to somebody who had been through it because I was just approaching it looking from the outside in. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. so I can see where that, where, where, uh, where somebody's like, well, you, you're seeing if you can, I write, try to write from the human perspective, but with some certain situations to go to somebody and really, so I can get the inside view, not just mm-hmm. me looking into it, like with the breast cancer thing, but somebody who's gone through it telling me, no, 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 you, you, that's that's the way you're seeing it in all my research. Like they're telling me, you're not really stressing that enough. So I had to go back mm-hmm. and, and do and do mm-hmm. that, you know. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. but even from the human perspective, yes, the the story that you're telling, and I think you have a right to tell the story through through. Um, the characters based on your experiences and 
your research and getting feedback from others. No matter what book you write in, there are going to be people I've learned. Yeah. I've been doing this. I don't care what book you write. There are going to be people who are going (laughs) to tell you they like it or they're going to tell you they don't. They'll give you a reason why. It doesn't matter what the story is. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't. You know, it's it's almost like somebody tells you, you shouldn't write that book. Then you really should go ahead and write that book. (laughs) If you you really want to, absolutely, because the more books you write and publish, you're going to see, you'll see more and more. There'll be people who will love the story. They'll just love it. And then there'll be people who, I don't care what you write. They they may take issue with the story. They just tell you, I don't care for that type of story. Mm-hmm. But, no, I think you have a right to write it. Absolutely. And it sounds like a very interesting story. Now to go to your next book, and was this, this I'm assuming, is your first novel that you wrote. If you could give us an mm-hmm. overview of your book, Humble Pie. Yeah, yeah. Well, that one's a memoir. So that one's got some, some truth in there um, and a few exaggerations. Um, but I grew up, this, is, this still sort of takes place a little bit in that same town, that community in New Jersey. I grew up in a, in a family with five kids, and we had a backyard that had four apple trees in it. And my father loved pie. And so what was my mother going to do with all these apples? Well, she was going to make apple pies. And we made over 100 pies every year. And we had like a hot, fresh apple pie on our table every week. And the others we gave away. And so that was the impetus of the story. I, when I was first starting out with writing, I wrote these stories as uh, newspaper features. And I was living in Minnesota at the time. And my community loved these pie stories. So eventually, you know, I had uh, a couple dozen of these things. And so eventually I decided, well, I can, I can make these into a book. And so I did. And I wrote new material for it. It wasn't just a rehash of the old stories. So I wrote this memoir about what it was like growing up in a family where making pies was really like one of the most important things you could do. And um, so all these stories come from that, you know, and um, it was really fun to write it and it was fun to market it and promote it. Um, I just had a grand time doing it. And it was nominated for a Minnesota Book Award um, in the year that it came out. I didn't get the top prize, but I was um, really honored to be nominated. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. It's it's a fun read. Um, I Actually, I just found out from my publisher that they've sold the last copy. So it is wow. out of print right now. Okay. I know. So I, gotta, I have to hustle and think about what I'm going to do next because there's still a, a market for it in the, in the resale market, but that's all that's available right now are the used books. So I'm going to have to think about the rights reversion and and publishing it again somewhere else because people still love this book. And um, it actually has a couple of pie recipes in it, but it is not a cookbook. It is really a memoir. Stories. There's a story about my mother, about my mother-in-law, both of whom were great pie makers. And I even invented something called pie maker trading cards where the great pie makers of our world are honored with trading cards, just like the way baseball players are. And I, I never knew there was such a thing. Oh my there gosh! Is it. I made it up. <laughs> I made it up. No, that people really, make like really you, you know, a hundred pies a year. I mean, you say okay, you think holidays and et cetera. But can you yeah. tell us more? Were they selling these pies? Were they all the same type of pie? And why did your family get started? In this pie making, how did this even get started? Well, it was the four apple trees in the backyard. You know, it's like, there's all these apples. What are you going to do? There's five kids. There's a father who loves pie. So my mother just made pies and pies and pies. And um, so, you know, homemakers made their own food. And so these were homemade pies. And, of course, my mother knew how to make a pie. Her mother had taught her. Her mother-in-law had, had, ta- had taught her too. So, and then she taught me, 
and all the kids sort of had to get involved because it was almost like an assembly line some days. August was the month. Well, apples started coming in, and we had to slice these apples. We had to measure out the sugar. We had to roll out pie crust. So I came by this honestly. I still make a mean pie. I am a champion (laughs) pie maker myself. So almost all the pies we made were apple because that's what we had. But this being New Jersey, there were also a lot of blueberries in the picture. So blueberries were second. And then rhubarb, oh, rhubarb comes into the picture too. But most of the pies from my childhood, this part of the book, are apple pies. And it's still my favorite pie. Are there any Uh, beans? Oh, oh, no, no, go ahead, Hmm? go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say, in the book, uh, there's a story about how when I moved to Minnesota with that baby girl that I had when I thought I was going to be a writer, uh, I moved to a new place uh, that had some acreage to it, and all of a sudden, 30 rhubarb plants grow out of the ground. If you know rhubarb, you know, one plant is like enough. But there were 30 rhubarb plants. So I just got to work. It sort of was like a sign. You know, like my mother had these four apple trees. Well, I've got 30 rhubarb plants. So I perfected the rhubarb pie. And the New York Times even agrees with me. They feature my rhubarb pie recipe in their uh, compendium of, of Oh, my recipes. goodness. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was some of the fun part. But so, so rhubarb, I'd say those, these were the top three, apple first, then blueberry, then rhubarb. So this was all about fruit pies in my family. And um, one of the important aspects of this is that half of the pies we made, we gave away, you know, my mother was a very popular person in our town. <laughs> People would always invite Mary over because she would offer to bring an apple pie. So things like, you know, the church suppers, the school bake sales, uh, the sick family, whatever. There was my mother with an apple pie. So that was part of the ethos of making pies, was the spirit of generosity. And that's the book actually goes into that quite a bit, that this is what's really at the heart of a lot of women's work, a lot of their cooking, and specifically around pies. It's about being generous, being being resourceful with what's given to you and being generous with it to others. I was so going to ask you if there a, was, Yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to ask you, ask you if there were any life themes that you focus on. I know you said it's a memoir, but did you find that to be mm-hmm. the case after you had finished the book? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think generosity is the one. And, you know, you could say that comes out in my nonprofit work, too, my career. Um, you know, there's a generosity of, of spirit that um, motivates you to, you know, look for the place where they need your help and then go in. Yeah. So I think, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of people, especially a lot of women. And this is a value a lot of women hold very dear. Is is helping, um, and some of our some of our values are different from the prevailing societal values that are more masculine, and I think this is one of them. And another okay. one is uh, making a lot with what you have. So it's like, well, there was my mother with four apple trees. There I was with thirty rhubarb plants. What are you gonna do? You know, somebody out there needs a good pie in their life because they're going through a tough time. So, yeah, that's a scene, too. Okay. Now, congratulations again. Humble Pie was a finalist in the 2005 Minnesota Book Awards. Can you share a few things readers have told you that they appreciate about your book, Humble Pie? Oh, I think the best thing ever said, and several people said it, was that they were inspired to go out and make their very first pie. Uh, okay. And, that's, and to me, that's wonderful 
that it's like my work is done on this planet. I have inspired somebody to do this. <laughs> they are now going to be part of this this chain of people who are going to make pies for other people. They're not just going to sit back and eat somebody else's pie. They're going to go out and make it. And some of those people were men, and they were going to learn how to make a pie like they remember their mother doing. So that is my fondest memory about that book and its effect. Now, you also have dived into playwriting, what attracted yes. you to writing plays? Well, as a kid, I was always involved in the drama clubs. And when I first started college, I was I was interested in a theater arts major, but I I did quickly change to anthropology. But so it was always um, part of my background. I loved the art form of theater. And so I, in fact, I started out writing plays and not narrative works. But now I've, I, I probably have written more narrative works than plays, although I'm starting on a new work right now that's a play. I, I left playwriting alone for the last several years. Um, it's hard to get traction in playwriting. It, it takes, I mean, as hard as it is to get a book published, it's even harder to get a play produced. So it's important to me as a writer that I reach an audience. You know, this is this is what it's about. It's an exchange of ideas. You know, the reader or the person in the audience at the theater, they complete the circuit. And um, it's important for me to reach people. So I, I um, concentrated on the book for several years, and now I'm going to swing back and try another play. Tell us about at least one of the plays that you have that you have worked on, and was it performed live on stage? Yeah, okay. Uh, this one has not been produced on stage, and why it hasn't, I don't know, because I think it was the best one I've written so far. It's called Roxanne.com. And it's an updating of the play Cyrano de Bergerac, which um, was a, originally uh, one of the classic works about a uh, an ugly man with a big nose who has a wonderful heart and yet is not seen by the woman he pines for. Well, I've turned the tables on this story, and it uh, takes place as a modern office romance and um, it involves a woman of, of very ample size who is extraordinary and brilliant in her work but is not recognized because she does not fit convention, standards of conventional beauty. So, And it's a comedy. It's really very funny, and it uses a lot of... Um, the tech aspects of our day, like uh, social media sites, and it hasn't been produced yet. And that makes me sad, but, you know, you got to move on at some point. So that is still out in the world. Should anybody be moved to want to get their theater to produce this, um, they can contact me through my website. Okay, I hope I hope it does get get out there and we start to we start to hear about it and get a chance to go see it. Now, you also participate as we come down to the last few minutes of today's show. You participated in the Ragdale Foundation residency. Tell us what yeah. that experience was. What was that experience like? Oh man, that like? was that was wonderful. It's an artist residency outside of Chicago, and um, they award you know successful applicants with two weeks to come to their lovely big old home and for you to do your work. Now, they have lots of different types of artists that come there, um, visual artists, sculptors, dancers, musicians, and writers. And so I was chosen one year to come, and I spent two weeks working on my project of the time. And what was so wonderful is that I didn't have to do anything. I didn't have to make my bed. I didn't have to cook my lunch or dinner. I would work all day. And then at night I'd come down and there'd be another dozen people like me. We'd all have dinner together. We'd all have, you know, fun conversation afterwards and talk about our work and show each other what we're doing. And I felt 
so cared for. I felt like, you know, acknowledged. People saw that this was this was important for me and others to be given the gift of time and lack of, you know, practical worries that you could do your artistic work. So that was a wonderful experience. And very supportive. It, it does sound like oh, it. Some, yeah. It's How so long wonderful. was that residency? It was two weeks. And uh, oh, okay. there was there was someone there at the same time. She got to stay a month because there was a special program for older women um, writing in a particular area. And so she, she was awarded that residency, and it lasted uh, four or it might have even been six weeks. So okay. Some residencies will, will go that long, yeah. So can you share with us three to four steps you've taken and that you found to be effective at getting the word out about your books and your plays? Yeah. Well, you have to really do it yourself. I mean, it's wonderful to be invited onto somebody else's podcast, but the, some of the best things that have happened to me have been because I went out and I got the interview. I went out, I sent out the press release, or I went out and organized the event. So I think the very first piece of advice is to be proactive um, and not expect that others are going to invite you in and be their guests all the time. Uh, second thing is to be be an active part of the ecosystem um, of, of writing, and that means reading others and um, you know, giving good reviews on their books and talking them up and going to their events and buying their books. So, you know, be a, be a good writer citizen, too, and um, show, you know, throw the spotlight on others. And then a third thing is to just never lose heart and keep doing the work. I mean, I've had some, you know, uh, depressed moments about, you know, sales not going the way I think they should go. But you can't let that get to you, you know. Nobody's going to do this for you. So you just have to keep at it. And, and you, that, Denise, you are so inspirational around this message. I mean, I've, I've looked at all your stuff on your site, too, and we can all learn a thing or two from you every day. Um, you are indefatigable, and um, you inspire us to, to keep doing our work. Thank oh, you for that. It. I appreciate that. I really do. So before we wrap up, I want to ask you, are you working on anything new? And if so, when can we expect to see that on the market? Well, the thing I'm working on now, it is a new play, and I'm waiting to hear if I get a grant award for it. One of our local arts organizations put out a call for proposals, and I should be hearing very soon. And if I get this, I will be writing a play that touches on – Issues of, of mental illness. Um, so I'm afraid this one's not going to be a comedy, although I'm sure it will have its lighthearted moments, being me and all. But it is about a serious issue, and it's, it's currently the cause that I am most involved in. This comes from my nonprofit. I retired about a year ago, but I'm, I'm just as busy as ever helping other organizations and spreading the word about their good work. So yeah, right now, think, for me, it's it's mental health. Yeah, and that's something that we can't talk about enough because it's, it's like an right. invisible uh, thing. Yeah. Where can off-the-shelf listeners get copies of your books? Well, um, you can order it from any bookstore or any online retailer. So you can have your pick. You can go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble, or you can go to IndieBound or any, any of the um, – independent booksellers. Any bookstore will order this for you. It's probably not on the shelf in your local bookstore because it just hasn't had that kind of reception. But um, it's in print. There's copies waiting for all of you. Um, libraries have it. And I actually think this is, this is also a good book for younger readers. So... Um, I think I think adults should should buy this and read it and then pass it off to a teenager in their life. Okay. Um, I didn't. Yeah, it, it's 
it's a little more subtle than than a lot of young adult novels, but um, there really is a coming of age aspect to it. So I would say, you know, adults buy this book, read it, talk about it, and send it on to a teenager in your life. Okay. Well, we have been just so delighted to have Anne DeMock with us here on Off the Shelf this morning. And her website, again, is andemock, A-N-N-E-D-I-M-O-C-K.com. I encourage you to visit us. And she's the author of the books Against the Grain and Humble Pie, and she also writes plays, and hopefully she wins that, that grant or whatever it is she said she applied for so we can see her, her, her play Hopefully on stage soon. Thank you yeah. so much, Ann. Yes. Oh. Thank you so much, Ann, for being here with us on Off the Shelf. Truly enjoyed you. And to our listeners, as I always tell you, you are incredible. You're awesome. You are fabulous. Go out and create a wonderful day for yourself. See you back here next Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And I'll send you a link to the show when it finishes streaming. Thank you so much. Bye for now. Thank you, Denise. Bye-bye.